Escaped Sapiens. Almost everyone at some point in their lives has looked up at the stars and wondered how many of them have orbiting planets, and how many of those orbiting planets might have life, and how much of that life might be intelligent and capable of thinking very similar thoughts about their own night skies. If you think long enough about these sorts of questions, it's also natural to wonder about how life began on our own planet, and how much of it might be hidden away in our own galaxy. For most of human history, these big questions, whether we're alone and how life began, have been pure speculation. The exciting thing is that today we now have the tools to begin addressing these puzzles scientifically. That is, we have rovers on Mars, large space telescopes, and a detailed knowledge of biochemistry and our own fossil record. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with astrobiologist and planetary scientist David Catlin to ask about how it all began, where are all the aliens, and how can we tackle these questions with science? I hope you enjoy. If we found life on Mars tomorrow, in your mind, what would it mean? What would the impact be here on Earth? I think it would mean that it would show that life is not some kind of unique miracle confined to the Earth. If we had two planets in the solar system where life exists, then um, assuming that it was an independent origin, then it would show that uh, life is quite common throughout the universe, at least that would be the implication. Now we'd have to look carefully at what exactly that life is, and if it turned out to be based on DNA, and then we were able to do a genetic analysis and show that it's genetically related to us, then it would just be that life has been transferred across the solar system from one planet to the other. And so that would be still a major discovery that um, within solar systems, life can transfer to one planet to another but it would be less impressive than finding an independent origin of life, which would then have these deeper implications for life throughout the universe. Um, So that's essentially, you know, at the moment, we're the only life that we know about. And so some independent life elsewhere would, of course, uh, change that completely. And And if, in particular, if it was a different biology, say, for example, it had different molecules that were forming its genome and it had used different proteins and so on, um, the major impact would be on biology itself because biology has this sort of sample of one type of biochemistry, uh, you know, with life on Earth being DNA-based and having a certain um, set of proteins and so on that, that are made of a certain set of amino acids and certain types of fatty molecules as well. So um, we would would understand biology much better if we had an independent uh, life form that we could study because we would show what other possibilities there could be within the periodic table, so to speak, which is the common denominator to form life life, um, somewhere else. Did life only start, as far as we know, it only started once on Earth, right? Yes, as far as we know. but, you know, we, we can only go back to sort of the, with genetics, we can only infer the common ancestor and what happened before that is a bit fuzzy. So, so you could imagine that, that life actually started multiple times and there were some branches that just went extinct mm-hmm. and then only one came through to give, give rise to the, the life that we see today. And, and when we think about the origin of life, the idea that there might have been uh, little pockets on, on the earth, for example, think of puddles and ponds and lakes where life was trying to originate or some kind of self-replicating 
biochemical system, which had a genome, uh, was trying to come into existence. That there could have been multiple experiments. In fact, that actually helps, right? If you've got um, multiple experiments going on, one of which ultimately is successful uh, in producing these uh, these self-replicating things that evolve and they're self-sustaining in the prevailing environment, then they would just spread everywhere because they're mm -hmm. they're the successful organisms. Um, but yes, when we trace back life. Uh, it has a common common origin, a common ancestor, is what we mean by that. Um, but that's that's not an indication that the the origin of life is rare. It's just that life may get outcompeted by whatever is present at that moment. Yes. So so the origin of life, I think, is one of the big uh, un, unanswered questions in the whole of science, right? Because we we don't know exactly what happened when it happened and where it happened <laughs> so there's a lot of things to answer um and, and you could ask yourself well why hasn't this question uh been answered and there are there are various reasons for that but um i think you know you can you can talk about a societal reason you can talk about a scientific reason so if you if you think about the latter the scientific reasons is that the problem is really hard with multiple areas of science contributing to it. So in order to solve the origin of life, um, there are aspects of that, that that involve geochemistry and geology. So the settings on the early earth, there are aspects of that that involve organic chemistry, you know, making things in test tubes and flasks in the lab as an organic uh, synthetic chemist, which is a very specialized field not just of science, but of chemistry, right? And then and then there are aspects of that to do with biochemistry. And if you speak to organic chemists and biochemists, those are different um, people. And, and biochemistry, you know, is how our, obviously how our cells today work and what's going on then, there, and what we can infer, you know, about uh, pieces of that biochemistry that seem to be ancient and are common to all of the organisms and therefore have something to do with how that biochemistry originated. So so the, the scientific problem is that it's so multidisciplinary that not everybody has the knowledge to kind of mm -hmm. uh, address this problem, or essentially nobody has all of the knowledge to address this question. So it requires people to from different disciplines to really talk to each other yeah. <laughs> and really collaborate and then, and then the other problem is the structural one. The way that we fund science uh, is that we rely on sort of constituencies um, to advocate for their particular mm -hmm. uh, their particular area of science. And usually, you know, in in most disciplines, that's pretty straightforward. Particle physicists can all club together and argue for a big collider, which mm -hmm. you know costs billions of dollars or what or whatever billions of euros. And 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 they have a common goal, and often the way that they think about the science is is common because there's mm -hmm. a you know some current model. Mm -hmm. But in the origin of life, uh, these people are in different departments and going to different conferences and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the the funding level for this big scientific question is uh, is is much has been much less traditionally than mm -hmm. has been put into something like particle physics but but the but to me it seems no less important uh how life originated than say 
you know, whether there's a Higgs boson or not. Um, some physicists might disagree with that, but but they have. But you should stop and think because if there was nobody in the universe, <laughs> well, you don't. But if there was nobody in the universe to observe it, I mean, what would be the? It would be. Or we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would. The universe would be a rather pointless uh, entity of sterile physics and chemistry. It, w- it would just be this theater of all this physics going on, but nobody to actually mm-hmm. appreciate it. So, so the origin of life to me seems uh, a really important problem and, and the same kind of uh, level of funding and level of effort should be put into solving that problem that, that goes into finding new particles in particle physics, it seems to me, but, mm. but that's not the case, right? If you look at, tr- try to get funded to solve the origin of life <laughs> from, from, uh, uh, say, a typical funding agencies mm-hmm. you have in Europe or even the, the National Science Foundation in the United States. So so there are some places that, that do fund it. For example, NASA mm-hmm. uh, funds original life studies in the United States because they're interested in finding life elsewhere, and that's part of that problem. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's still a bit of a niche field, and I don't think mm-hmm. there are enough people um, and enough new students and postdocs and so on coming up the ranks um, in solving this problem. But but there has been progress, to be fair, mm-hmm. in the last um, 10, 15 years mm-hmm. uh, where we're getting more of an understanding, I think, of, of the origin of life. But there's a lot of big questions still to answer in that particular area. I guess uh, it's so you're dealing with unknown unknowns because we haven't seen uh, extraterrestrials before or we haven't you know it's um it's difficult in that direction as well just from a purely scientific question if you discount the funding that you're uh, afforded it, can i ask in terms of origin of life the fact that we haven't we only see one, um one origin of life on earth the fact that we only see one origin of life on earth does that tell you anything about what life can be you know, I can imagine situations where you could have different life forms that simply don't compete with uh, the life uh, that originated on Earth and maybe live in parallel uh, without being outcompeted. Uh, does this does this fact rule that sort of possibility out, for example? Well, I mean, you're always going to use your one example, right? So, so one example of, of biochemistry is life on Earth. Of course, it's. Um, you know, when we look at life on Earth, on the face of it, it seems tremendously variable. Uh, you've got a piece of grass, you've got a mushroom, you've got humans, and so on. But but when you look at the biochemical level and the cellular level, there's there's an awful lot of similarity in the genetic level. Um, so uh, all life, excluding viruses, which you know, let's that's another whole issue as to whether viruses are alive or not. But but is DNA based, okay? And then and then the DNA itself is made of these four nucleobases, you know, the classic letters of DNA. Um, and then the proteins are predominantly twenty amino acids and not other ones, but there are hundreds potentially mm-hmm. of amino acids that you could make proteins with. And then the fatty uh, molecules that tend to make up cell membranes and this kind of thing are also a limited subset that's like lego you you choose a particular unit and you and you keep using the same old piece over and over mm-hmm. again and life is constructed on earth like that and so you know what what do we learn about that we 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 learn certain things that um 
uh, fatty fatty molecules are great for just spontaneously <laughs> making membranes. You put oil in in certain oils in water, and and they'll form spheres, or they can form what we call vesicles, which are you know these these membranes with an aqueous phase on the on, in the middle, um, and that just happens spontaneously. Uh, mm. And then we know that proteins are great catalysts in biology and and in fact they're so good that it's hard to imagine any other way of doing biology um, without having protein catalysts of some sort but of course it doesn't mean that you have to use the same amino acids that uh, the other uh, lego building blocks of of proteins um, that we have on earth uh, so 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 it gives us hints as to how life operates and I think the definition that you have for life, which again is another problem <laughs> in biology and astrobiology, does influence how you think about the origin of mm -hmm. life. So, so let's just think about what what life is and and um, what it is is a genome. If, if we're talking about life that just orig originates from geochemistry, so geochemistry becomes biochemistry. I'm not talking about artificial life, mm -hmm. which you know requires things like us to originate from geochemistry first mm. in order to make, you know, some kind of artificial intelligence robot or something that, that mm -hmm. could be construed as a life. If we're just talking about life that spontaneously originates, it's, it ultimately is some genome containing chemical system that evolved and is self-sustaining in a particular environment, mm -hmm. right? That, that would be my definition of life. And, and the reason that the genome is so important in this definition is that there are plenty of things that metabolize that don't have a genome. I mean, think of your car, mm -hmm. uh, for example, or think of a fire, mm -hmm. right? And, and they're not alive because a critical aspect of being alive is to have this recipe, which is encoded in some kind of genes, right? And there's a famous little book, I don't know whether you've read it, What is Life by Erwin Schrodinger from 1944. Nobel Prize winning physicist, but he he basically came to this conclusion that that you know the genome was really an, an important aspect of life, and he and we didn't know what that it was DNA at that point. That wasn't until the nineteen fifties that that was discovered, but he he talked about it as being some kind of a crystal type of thing that has an aperiodic structure. Because if it's periodic, has doesn't have much information in it, but if it's aperiodic than it does, um, that encodes the information that's needed to behave as a recipe for the organism. So um, so a critical part of the origin of life is figuring out how did the genome come about. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's not, not everybody agrees with that. Some people want to emphasize that metabolism is a key, but I really strongly disagree with that because that's not life. You have to originate this uh, genetic system and the genetic molecules, first of all, um, or not first of all, but but as a critical component of uh, this living organism. And so a lot of the leading origin of life researchers are trying to figure out how genetic molecules came about um, and, and how you had how you got from there to the first self-replicating mm -hmm. sort of genome, essentially. So if, if you had all the funding in the world and you were to set up a lab in that case uh, to create synthetic life, where would you personally begin? I, I, I... Um, that's quite a difficult question. <laughs> 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 
because because you're in a you're in a Max Planck Institute, right? And it's like saying, okay, let's have a let's have a Max Planck Institute for astrobiology or the origin of life or something. What mm-hmm. would you do as director? Uh, so you'd have to sit down and think about that quite a lot. But um, I, I think, like like I said before, the origin of life problem requires all these different areas of expertise. Mm-hmm. So you'd want to have next door to each other synthetic organic chemists, biochemists, mm-hmm. geochemists, geologists, and having together meetings where they try to figure out, you know, one one answers to one problem at a time, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, and, and actually, there's some of that going on already. So I'm involved in an, a collaboration which is privately funded by the Simons Foundation in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's a collaboration on the origin of life where we have, you know, people from around the United States and elsewhere, actually. Uh, it, it extends to Europe uh, in particular. Uh, where we're trying to get together the kind of range of people that I just suggested and and work together, albeit in a remote way because we're in different universities or different institutions and and try and address these problems. And what we what we found is that we do get feedback uh, in the sense that you know an organic chemist who's making uh, nuclear nuclear bases of the genetic molecules in a test tube or in a flask will say something like, well, I need these conditions. I need, you know, one molar of concentration of this substance and some other concentration of this substance. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's feasible on the early earth? Mm-hmm. And then someone like me, who's more in the ge- geochemistry side of things and earth science side of things, will say, well, okay, that's pretty unusual, but <laughs> I could imagine, you know, a lake or something on the early Earth or after some asteroid impact, it produces these conditions that you were just talking about. Um, and so then we start, and then someone like me will think about that in more detail as mm-hmm. to whether that's something that's actually could happen, maybe do some modeling uh, mm-hmm. or something like that, or maybe do some lab experiments in my lab, which are more, which is not an organic chemistry lab is not a biochemistry lab, but is a physical, but we can do physical chemistry. We can do physics experiments. We can do things related to um, geology and geochemistry. So so that's how I would address this problem. But but I think there is probably, you know, one a big advantage in having people um, co-located, which is something mm-hmm. that we don't have in our, in our collaboration, that you can just go next door. To the to the guy next door and knock on their office and say, you know, I don't know about the details of this organic chemistry because I'm not an organic chemist, mm-hmm. but can you explain this to me? And you can sit mm-hmm. down and talk it through. Um, so that's what I would do if I was, you know, had had all all the money available and was setting up some some institute to solve the problem of of the origin of life. But um, yeah, it's still. I mean, it's still interesting because we don't know the answers. Um, and I think even if we did begin to know some of the answers, that's it's such a big problem uh, that 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 we can keep studying f- for a long time. Um, uh, but and there's also a lot of con- controversy because it's a, an unsolved problem. Uh, you sometimes come across this in science where we don't know the answer, and then people will speculate. And they will become tied to a particular line mm-hmm. of argument and, mm-hmm. and kind of defend it 
um, which then is it becomes odd. non-scientific, because, I suppose. Well, it can become a, it can become a little bit of a turf war, and and what's interesting about that is that when if we don't know the answer to some question, it ought to be the opposite, right? That that you you keep that you don't form mind. ranks that you don't form ranks. Yeah, but it seems to be a curious thing that that sometimes in science that when you have a big unanswered question that that um, people become tribal people can become more tribal yeah because of that and it, where when it actually should be the opposite that they should become less tribal because we don't know no, we have the same thing in physics we don't know the answer oh really okay yeah. yeah i think it's just probably a function of the psychology of, of human beings that 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 comes about um but but eventually you know what happens is that somebody makes a big discovery where it mm-hmm. becomes obvious that oh this this is the right direction, not that direction. And then there might still be a few diehards. You know, that happened in in the geosciences, that happened with plate tectonics. When plate Mm -hmm. tectonics came along in the 50s and 60s, uh, one of my colleagues, who's who's an expert on on plate tectonics, is a professor at Stanford. He tells me about when he was invited to a conference in the 70s and he was sort of ambushed because they'd invited him along as a defender of plate tectonics and all the old guard who still hadn't accepted it believe it or not even in the 1970s just sort of ambushed him (laughs) and he he kind of realized he was like daniel going to the 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 lion's den (laughs) Uh, but he he was you know he's a very bright guy and i'm sure he defended plate tectonics quite well with all the evidence and and the theory but um you know max planck famously said or to paraphrase, you know, science progresses one, one, one dead funeral, scientist at the time. One funeral at a time, <laughs> yeah, uh, because it can it can be the case that some people become a very ossified and set in set in their their viewpoint about uh, how how things work. And, and plate tectonics is, is almost like the classic example of that. But I'm sure there are other examples. And, and Max Planck, of course, was, was thinking a physicist. About examples in physics, yeah. Um, I know, for for example, some very basic things like kinetic theory took a, a long time to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Boltzmann committed suicide because I think because no one believed what he was saying. Yes, so, well, he was he was depressed about that and various other things. Um, but yes, uh, he's an example of of someone who believed in kinetic theory and the exist the real existence of atoms and things like that, which in the nineteenth century were all issues of controversy and took a while to be accepted. Um, yeah, so that isn't that is interesting the way that, that that science progresses. But I don't think you know I'm not one of these people who buys into this idea that there's a discovery and then a sudden paradigm shift. Um, mm-hmm. That I think it happens kind generally happens more gradually than that. And there's usually people thinking on along the lines of what eventually becomes the paradigm shift. Anyway, if you look in the literature, some somewhere. An example in 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 related to astrobiology is the fact that we find solar systems that are quite different from our our own, right? You know, the first um, planets around sun-like stars were discovered very close to their stars, hot Jupiters. Mm-hmm. And although we know now that those are not um, common typical. planets, yeah, they're not typical. They're, they're sort of one percent or less of of planetary systems. They nonetheless exist, and and um, I remember when I was a, an undergraduate or perhaps beginning graduate student uh, in the nineteen nineties, or that's when I started graduate work. Um, 
that that the theorists almost all of them were saying oh if we find solar systems elsewhere they'll be like our own they'll be the the rocky ones on the inside and then because it gets colder in a in a nebula then there'll be these gas giants on the outside and basically it looked just like our solar system as what their predictions were and but there 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 was the odd you know paper if you delve deeply enough that talked about alternative mm -hmm. uh, solar systems and, and planets that migrated around which of course then became mm -hmm. um a big area of, of astronomy once they discovered uh, uh hot jupiters and, and and hot neptunes and so on that, that people started uh, publishing a lot of papers about planet migration how that worked and and so on and that, that planets could move around even in our own solar system. <laughs> I, can, um, I guess, though, you will have an uh, evol a revolutionary uh, outcome if, if someone does eventually discover life on Mars or on one of the moons of some outer planet. That, well, that is going to be a critical moment which explodes into a whole new uh, direction of exploration, right? Um, it could be, but it depends on what the discovery actually is, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Um, so, so one kind of what I might call an end member. So one case you could imagine would be ambiguous. So you're looking at the spectrum of say an exoplanet reflected light or transmitted light. And it looks like there are gases in there, which are made by biology, for example, oxygen. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, astronomers in particular are very clever and inventive. Uh, as a as a field, and there'll, there'll there'll be lots of them that come up with ways to make the oxygen abiotically mm -hmm. without life or whatever other gases, mm -hmm. say methane or something. Um, so so there could be ambiguous signals, and then then you could say, okay, but supposing we found um, a radio signal from an extraterrestrial civilization. So this would be SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I agree. That that would be, you know, if you found pi or something, or you found some, <laughs> um, or or you found some message that was clearly uh, mm. so it held um, information. It wasn't periodic coded that it yeah. couldn't possibly be a natural signal. Now, now I would agree that that would be unambiguous uh, evidence for life, and uh, elsewhere. And not only that, but that it got to the stage of being a technological intelligence. And of course, there'd be all sort of philosophical thoughts about that, that, that pe even people in the humanities would have to address, right? Uh, and think about what it means for theology, if there are other intelligent mm -hmm. beings, are they saved by, um, <laughs> you know, a son of God as well? Or, or how does that work? Are there, there are actually, there is actually a, um, an area of theology, or there are a few th theologists that, that have thought about this and written on um They go to your conferences? Sorry, they go to your conferences. Uh, well, in, they they might go to the really broad ones, like when you have an astrobiology science conference that covers everything. There might be a session on the societal implications of astrobiology or something. So, can I ask if um, if I gave you all the money in the world and you set up your institute, would you want an astrotheologist? Uh, <laughs> um, to me, that's not the most pressing question because <laughs> things things like the origin of life or whether life exists elsewhere and how to detect it i think are the more um zero order and first order questions that i would want to address and uh you know once once we discover life elsewhere or understand the origin of life better then you know that's the time for 
people in the humanities to talk about what that means, but not. It's too early, really, to 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 make much progress in that issue. And I'm I'm happy for people who do that line of work to you know speculate about it or think about it at this stage. But it's not it's not the most pressing problem. And, and of course, I'm a scientist. I'm not coming from that, so I tend to Shy see away. the problems that, that we need <laughs> to address um, first. But um, to go back to my point about a SETI discovery, you know, one of the issues there is 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 even if we'd understand the signal. So if mm-hmm. we found if we had a signal from a really uh, intelligent uh, civilization, which in all possibilities might be more way more advanced than us, if they've had thousands of more years of or even millions of uh, advance advances, then would we even understand it? Um, because, and, and the reason I say that is, is informed from experience on the earth. So there are, there are hieroglyphics that we still don't understand mm-hmm. from the earth and they were made by humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you, you may have heard of linear A and linear B, which are these kind of, um, old systems of, of, of writing. Um, from thousands of years ago, and um, and linear B was deciphered. I think it was the nineteen, I want to say the nineteen sixties or something like that. Uh, simply because there were place names that could be correlated with sort of later place names in in, in Greek. Uh, but as far as I know, nobody's made any progress with with linear A, um, and so so linear B was related to some kind of form of ancient ancient greek mm-hmm. that it could be related to it but if we can't if we can't even uh decipher human scripts i mean what hope are we going to have with extraterrestrial scripts where the the extraterrestrials are way more advanced than us so so um so i just you know unless they're deliberately targeting mm-hmm. uh a message that that they hope to be understood so for example the number pi repeated to eight digits mm-hmm. and then repeat, 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 repeat or something, then then um, obviously that would be decipherable. It would, there wouldn't be much content in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we just happen to intercept a random communication somehow from an advanced civilization, you know, I'm not sure what we'd do with that. It, it, it would mm-hmm. certainly be a discovery that life existed elsewhere, but, but it would probably, you know, end up as a big conspiracy thing on the internet where people are trying to decipher what it means and mm-hmm. in sort of the internet warriors who, who think they have the answer. Um, I mean, we could at least, we could probably determine that it came from a certain direction and that it wasn't sort of uniform o- over space time. And, you know, th- th- yes. we could, you could probably tell that it was intelligent, but de- deciphering's a, a completely different game. Can, right. can I ask, um, taking a step back from intelligent life though, are you... Sort of, is there some worry that we haven't found anything yet? For example, on Mars, you know, what are the tests that we've done on on Mars? Are they sort of definitive or, or not at all? Well, I mean, that's um, an interesting question. What I would say is that we haven't found so far any obvious signs of life on Mars. So, so what I mean by that is that if you if you took a trip to the ancient Earth which we can do, for example, in the country that you come from, in Australia. We can go to Northwest Australia, to the area called the Pilbara, 
and we can see things that it, that we can see uh, geology that existed um, three and a half billion years ago. And we can see life forms, even with the naked eye that existed three and a half billion years ago, because there are fossilized stromatolites. So stromatolites are these microbial mats that existed in uh, coastal regions, either of the sea or of lakes. And um, they were uh, photosynthetic mounds. So, so mounds that are made by these photosynthetic organisms that want to grow up towards the light. And, so, and then they deposit these mineral layers. And uh, in a place called North Pole, which was, you know, some Australian was trying to have a bit of a joke there because it's about <laughs> 50 degrees Celsius in the summertime and, and a mere 35 degrees Celsius in the wintertime. Um, in this place called North Pole, Australia, in, in, in the Pilbara, um, you can find these, these uh, stromatolites. Uh, and they're the oldest uh, uh, fossils that are visible to the, to the naked eye. Um, really, and 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 so um, you can ask. How, how old are they? Why haven't we? Three point five billion years old. Can, can and, we do carbon dating? That sorry for interrupting. Oh no. You. How do we determine the age then? Oh, um, usually there are some. There's some volcanic layers which are, you know, above or below uh, mm. these these sedimentary rocks. So it's all geology. And and and, and then from the long lived isotope systems uranium lead or and things like that we can we can deduce the age of the volcanic rocks mm -hmm. and then the sedimentary rocks which are much harder to date uh, because they don't you know they, they don't have the same chemist geochemistry as, as the volcanic rocks and so they don't have the same um isotopic systems that we can mm -hmm. date but we, we date them relative to Mm -hmm. say a, a layer of volcanic ash or a lava flow or something and, and then that places them within a certain range of dates mm -hmm. so these things are 3.5 billion years ago and we can we can ask the question well we don't see something like that on mars right we don't see any macroscopic visible to the naked eye um, signs of life we don't see any fossils that, that, are, that, are, that are dead ringers for life okay so, so what we're looking for on Mars are remnants, really, of microbial life. And, and we know that the surface of Mars is very hostile to any life that would exist today. There's no ozone layer on Mars. It has a thin, predominantly carbon dioxide atmosphere. So ultraviolet light in the range of wavelengths from 200 nanometers to about 300 nanometers gets through to the surface. On, on the surface of the Earth, that's blocked by the ozone layer, which is really a good thing. Because if we didn't have it, you'd go outside in 10 minutes, you'd have awful sunburn. <laughs> okay. But on Mars, that doesn't exist. So, so these these photons go down to the surface. And, you know, if you just calculate the energy of a photon, it's sufficient to break a carbon-carbon mm. bond of, of simple organic molecules. So it it's essentially a sterilizing um, surface because of the ultraviolet to some extent. There are some hardy microbes that, of course, that coat themselves and form mm -hmm. uh, dormant um, uh, uh, forms that, 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 that then that then could perhaps survive this ultraviolet. Um, but anyway, in general, it's a pretty hostile environment. And also it's, it's extremely dry, lacks liquid water, um, mm -hmm. very cold. Generally, um, the, average, the, 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 the mean global temperature of Mars is about minus 55 degrees Celsius. And we find those temperatures in the interior of the Antarctic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a sort of comparison that we're making. But of course, it's a dry desert on mm-hmm. on Mars globally. So so you know when we had the Viking landers and Viking missions to Mars in the 1970s. After that mission in the 1980s, people began to realize that the surface of Mars was not really um, a place that was very hospitable for life today. And so the, the emphasis then focused to, well, what about ancient mm-hmm. life on Mars? And we've, after all, we do find dried up river, be- river valleys and mm-hmm. um, that we can see from from quite exquisitely from orbit. And, and we also see dried up, what areas that look like dried up lakes and so on. Um, so the question then became, did life originate then on early Mars when water was flowing around? Uh, and are there signs of that life today? Uh, and so far, you know, we haven't, we haven't got that um, information. What we do have is that it appears that you know all of the all of the ingredients, or at least the geochemical environment, there was water, there was sources of carbon, there was source of phosphorus, and so on, even a source of nitrogen. Uh, that that um, that conditions those sort of very basic conditions, the 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 atomic elements, if you like, were were there to make mm-hmm. life, but we just haven't found any definitive uh, sign of it yet. And and part of that it could be technology limited. Mm-hmm. So one thing that the Perseverance rover, which is up on Mars today, is doing is it's collecting samples. It has forty three uh, sample tubes. They're, they're sort of like sort of chalk stick size, made of titanium, and and they're putting samples of soil and rock into these tubes, with the view that they will be dumped on the surface of Mars in a sort of pile, if you like. And, and, then, and then there'll be another mission that comes there, picks them up and returns them to Earth. And, and, and that will enable um, us to, to use, you know, the most sophisticated lab instruments on the Earth to look at these samples and determine, are there signs of life in the mm-hmm. soil or the rocks that were sampled by Perseverance rover? So that, So I think it could be technology limited in the sense that we just don't, you know, what we send on a rover is just not sufficient to mm-hmm. determine whether life is there. But maybe when you get it back in the lab, we can find that there's organic molecules that are diagnostic of life, or there are even fossil microbes or something like that. Which, which is a problem we have on the on the early Earth. Incidentally, you go to the early Earth, and if, where you don't see the stromatolites, there can still be uh, sedimentary rocks that contain microfossils. But if you look in the field. It just looks like an old piece of sandstone or something, and it's no sign of life in it. But if you bring it back and slice it up and put it under a microscope, you can actually find fossil. You can find um, microfossils, which are fossils of microbes. Okay, yeah. but but you could never see that just in the field. And if you sent a rover there, it's well, you know, like we have mm-hmm. up on Mars, it's not clear that you would actually discover life on ancient Earth in that okay. way. Can, can I ask just quickly, in terms of microfossils, so if I find a fossil, the dragonfly or something, I can see the structure of the wings and the body and so on. It's quite obvious that that's a, that was a living creature. When, when you're looking at micro, I'm guessing that's fossils on micrometer scales or yes. smaller. How, how do you distinguish something like that from a natural process in general? So, you know, if you have like a single cell organism or <laughs> a clump of single cell organisms, how, 
how do you distinguish that sort of um, thing as something that was living once? Yeah, well, so so of course, um, the geologists and, and paleontologists who study this problem have sort of developed a list of characteristics that they look that they're looking for. Um, and, and the more characteristics, the more boxes you check, the more likely it is that what you're looking at is a microfossil. So, for example, microbes live in colonies. So if you just found one, <laughs> that would probably be not, not a good thing. So you'd expect to find a bunch of microfossils altogether. My, micro, uh, microbes divide. So if you mm -hmm. see a fossil uh, in the process of where, where a microbe is in the process of division, fission, okay, mm -hmm. binary fission, um, giving rise to, to one, giving rise to two, that's another box to check. Um, you can interrogate not just the geology, but the geochemistry. So you can look to see whether there's remnants of organic carbon there, or maybe even other elements like nitrogen and so on that are still there in the rock. That's another box to check. Um, you, you can look at the individual morphology. You know, are they uh, just spherical or are they all... Mm -hmm. Elongated uh, sort of, or... Yeah, ovoids, like sort of egg-shaped or whatever, which or which can be the, you know, is is the uh, uh, shape of certain microbes. Um, if they're more sophisticated later on in Earth history, uh, instead of the made of cells like us, which have a nucleus, can you see a nucleus? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, as you, as you go further along in the history of life, uh, you can get more kind of ornamented, uh, if they're like fungi cells or something, you can, you can get... Um, more complex. Uh, do we have examples where you can see the? Sorry for interrupting you. Do we have examples where you can actually see the fossilized nucleus? We have that sort of precision. Um, yes, but that's much later in Earth history. Okay. So not from three billion years ago, two billion years ago, or whatever. It comes much later. Um, so, so the yes, but but the, the it's, it's one of the one also one of the big problems in in. Uh, biology is when did cells with nuclei arise so eukaryotic cells mm -hmm. is what they're called um and that's also also important because uh eukaryotic organisms are also the the only ones that do sex and then sex has a genetic advantage this mixing and matching of the uh genes and then that gives rise to all the really complex uh mm -hmm organisms that we have around so so yes um but to get back to the the first question which is uh, life on on mars um it may be that that we need to bring these samples back mm -hmm. and, and and interrogate them and then um you know if we don't find anything then it will begin to look pretty unlikely that mm -hmm. that mars was was inhabited of course that has its own meaning because we have a planet that had liquid water on its surface and has rocks that are, you know, the, the volcanic rocks are geochemically not that hugely different from ones that we find on Earth. And and yet life, if it's true that life didn't arise there, then, you know, what what, what do we conclude about that? Maybe the conditions for life are, are narrower to, to originate life and narrower than we think or more specialized than we think. In terms of people talk about this great filter and they try to in, infer the the absence of expert 
from the absence of that extraterrestrial life, something about our own prospects. So, for example, you know, um, if life is very common, yet we don't see it, does that imply that there was some, you know, um, extinction event that should have happened in our distant past? Are we able to infer anything uh, from what we've seen on Mars uh, about our own prospects yet? Um, I'm not sure you can you can extrapolate from Mars mm-hmm. to, to answer that question. So the, the great the great filter is often spoke spoken of that phrase with respect to extraterrestrial intelligent life, right? Mm-hmm. Why haven't we? You know, there's there's Fermi's paradox, which is why are the extraterrestrials not here? Um, if if they've had so long to develop in in the Milky Way and other galaxies or whatever, and given the age of the universe and the age of the Milky Way, um, and the and the number of stars and the number of planets, uh, and there's also why haven't we heard anybody yet through the radio telescope observations? You know, this, the great silence some people describe mm-hmm. it as, um, and people talk about the great filter being simply that civilizations or intelligent life is is violent and destroys itself or destroys its planet or in its environment or something or that intelligent life is just extremely rare or that life itself is extremely rare mm-hmm. okay so there's various places where you can invoke the the rarity it could be at the origin of life itself mm-hmm. it could be later on it could be the development of something like you the eukaryotic cell because the only complex life that we have on Earth that's three-dimensional, multicellular, and that, that runs and jumps and things like that has this very particular cell type, the eukaryotic cell with the nucleus. Um, so maybe that's a really difficult step. Or it could be that you can you can get multicellular organisms. Maybe that's not difficult. Um, but intelligent life is difficult. But then there are counterexamples. You know, the... the um, there are animals that that uh, have appear to have consciousness. They're they're self aware today. Like for example, the famous mirror test, which chimpanzees can see themselves in the mirror, and mm. if you put a spot on their head, they'll fiddle around with it, and they know that there's something on their head, and that's them that they're looking yeah. at, right, with the spot on their head. And and um, there's evidence that elephants are also self aware with the mirror test, and so on. So so there is intelligent life, but but the thing about life on earth is we know that you can be very successful without being technologically intelligent and and the classic example of that is the dinosaurs so the dinosaurs were around for 170 million years and apparently having big teeth and claws and so on was was just fine to get along and be successful in a biological sense which means you reproduce uh for for a vast (laughs) amount of time And, and as far as we know there were no technological Dinosaurs. It's actually an, an open question because you would think that we know that birds use tools and birds are dinosaurs. They're just a lineage that came through the extinction event. Um, and so so I find it slightly difficult to believe that there were not some dinosaurs that didn't use tools of some description. I mean, maybe they're very basic tools like pieces of wood or um, stones or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh but it would not surprise me in the future if you, you, you're reading nature or science or something, there's a paper in there saying the first discovery of dinosaur tools, right? Where they've, they've found a nest of eggs and there's also mm. some, I don't know, some flints or something that, that have been sharpened or something that the dinosaurs used. 
because simply they were around so long and, and we mm -hmm. know that the birds which are dinosaurs use tools so surely surely some of those dinosaurs use tools but um no discovery of micro of fossilized micro microwave ovens that dinosaurs <laughs> use or anything like that so so they never for some reason they never became technologically intelligent and as i said we don't even know whether they use tools but i think they probably some of them must have done um just from a, a, log a, a logical argument uh so maybe it's really hard to become technological because because you can be biologically so successful without this kind of cleverness that that homo sapiens has uh to to, to invent all this stuff <laughs> i kind of like um, the idea that the solution to the fermi paradox is perhaps that we have billions and billions and billions of planets filled with dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really like the eddie izzard sketch i don't know whether you've seen it he's no, a british comedian but he 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 does this he does this skit where he, or, or or um stand up thing where he talks about well why did why did God invent dinosaurs? You know, it's like <laughs> if God exists, why did he invent the dinosaurs? And they because they existed for so long, 170 million years, and then and then he waits for about 65 million years and invents humans. And you know, why all why all these monsters? <laughs> they were the bootloader. Sorry, they were the bootloader. The bootloader. They were the thing we needed to instantiate humans. Oh well, it's certainly true that you know um, mammals came from from reptiles, but still, it could have been maybe could have been faster if an asteroid had come along a bit sooner and, mm. and to to usher in the age of the mammals. Um, so, so it it is an interesting um, thing to think about: is 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 technological intelligence mm -hmm. rare? Uh, but then there could be other reasons for the great filter. So, so one of the aspects of um, complex biology on the earth is that it all breathes oxygen essentially mm -hmm. uh, and having such high levels of oxygen um, is unusual when you look in the solar system there's just the earth and and where does your oxygen come from but well, it comes from photosynthesis and so that means you have to ha evolve photosynthesis these organisms that split water and uh, they use the hydrogen um, for themselves but they release the oxygen as a waste product mm -hmm. so maybe that's really hard and if you don't have the oxygen uh, you, you're not going to have the kind of metabolism that we have that allows us to run jump and and have these very energy intensive brains mm -hmm. uh, because because none of the complex organisms where what I mean by by complex is you know meter scale with differentiated into organs and skeletons mm -hmm. and so on and with brains these simply could not exist with the, without the high level of oxygen that, that we have. Um, so maybe photosynthesis is a filter, uh, mm -hmm. oxygenic photosynthesis in particular, the form that releases oxygen. There are other forms mm -hmm. of photosynthesis. Um, or, or maybe even if that develops, it's quite hard to build up oxygen because oxygen is a very reactive molecule. And if you have them, had a more volcanic planet, it would just react with the volcanic gases and would never build up. So. Um, I do think the one thing that I do think, and I think is, it's a no brainer <laughs> mm -hmm. is, is that, um, complex life like us is obviously going to be rarer than microbial life, assuming that life exists elsewhere. So, um, so my optimistic vision is that, you know, may maybe microbial life is actually quite common for all we know it could be. 
Uh, we do not have the technology to detect it on exoplanets, planets around other stars at the moment, because we're waiting for the really big or extremely large telescopes, as, as they, that's the technical term, extremely large telescope, um, creative. To, be, to be built on, <laughs> on, on, on the Earth, ground-based telescopes, and also for the really uh, extremely large telescopes to be put into space, right? Mm -hmm. um, so at the moment, we don't have the technology to uh, see the spectra of these uh, atmospheres of planets to see if the microbes are doing something and changing the composition of those atmospheres, which we could in principle infer. And so I think that could be technologically limited at the moment that we simply don't, we're, on, we're almost on the cusp of being able to determine whether microbes are widespread on exoplanets and changing their atmospheres, but we're not quite there yet almost there so can i ask is um, there some something that you're particularly excited about on the horizon and any uh, particular experiments that are going on or will be going on in the next decades well i mean coming up this year there's the james webb space telescope will be launched into space assuming it doesn't get delayed again it's been uh, uh, a, a launch which has been repeatedly delayed but <clears throat> but that will at least give the first glimpse into um exoplanet atmospheres it, it, it's not really Big enough to to look for Earth-like planetary atmospheres and, and interrogate them uh, around sun-like stars, you know, planets like us, sort of a, what we what you might call a twin Earth. But it can look at planets that are <clears throat> are around red dwarfs and their atmospheres. So this with the red dwarfs, the, it's much easier because the planet is bigger relative to the size of the of the star. So red dwarfs are things about slightly less than 10% to 60% of a of a solar mass. Um, well, they're also called, in, in the astronomical classification system, they're called M, M stars, as opposed to the G stars, which uh, <coughs> are solar-like stars. Um, <clears throat> so I think even if James Webb Space Telescope doesn't discover life, we'll know way more about uh, exoplanets and their characteristics and whether they have atmospheres or not. So we'll begin to get information that helps us understand planetary habitability and the range of environments for life. Of course, it, it may, I don't know, it could hit the jackpot and mm -hmm. and, and get a spectrum which is diagnostic of um, gases that are being produced by, by a biosphere on another planet. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's probably a long shot. But I don't you'd, know. You'd rapidly get funding for a second telescope, then I imagine. <laughs> I think it might be accelerated. So, so um, <clears throat> there are concept studies that are, are fairly advanced within NASA for follow-up telescopes. Uh, one of them is called Louvre, which stands for Large UV Optical Infrared uh, Telescope, um, and that would be like a really big bruiser, like you know, ten, twelve meters diameter mirror in space. And it would, and you would be able to see reflected light from uh, a planet like the Earth orbiting a sun-like star, and then you could look for the absorption features of things like oxygen and things like methane, and see that you've got a weird planetary atmosphere from a chemical point of view because these things don't coexist uh, in in a abiotic planet. They the photochemistry means they react together, things like oxygen and methane, and so there has to be a continuous supply of these molecules mm -hmm. which is really big and i see so if you found a methane rich atmosphere what that would be an indication of uh it would have to be biotic would it um 
it depends on the context. So uh, if it's a, we'd have to restrict it to Earth-like planets, in other words, rocky planets with uh, liquid water on their surface, an ocean. And if you found a lot of methane in a planet on a planet like that, that would be quite hard to um, understand from an abiotic perspective because uh, high temperature volcanism doesn't produce methane. You can go to Hawaii and with a gas sensor and, and you won't find a, basically you won't find methane coming out of, out of the volcanoes there. Um, it's also hard to produce uh, abiotically even in the low temperature um, systems in the deep sea because uh, it's kinetically inhibited. It requires catalysts uh, to make it. So, so to have a prodigious flux would strongly point in the direction of um, biology, in my opinion. Uh, but it's even better if you find it, some methane and also some oxygen together, mm -hmm. because those things, uh, what happens is the oxygen in a net reaction tends to react with the methane and make carbon dioxide and water. That's thermodynamically where it should go. Mm -hmm. And so if you find methane and oxygen together, it means, oh, there's you know some microbial part of the biosphere is making all this oxygen or plants. And then some other microbial part of the biosphere is making all this methane. And so you've you've got what's called a disequilibrium mm -hmm. chemistry of, of, of the atmosphere, which um, if it's of a certain magnitude uh, is strongly indicative of, of a microbial biosphere. Or, or, a, or it could, doesn't have to be microbial. It could be like ours, which also has these macroscopic plants that are producing oxygen. But the first oxygen producers were, in fact, microbes called cyanobacteria. Mm -hmm. And they still exist today. They teem in, in the ocean. But what happened in, in the evolution of terrestrial biology is that some of these um, uh, bacteria uh, got co-opted into eukaryotic cells, which then became al algal cells and eventually became plant cells. So inside each, when I look at a plant outside and I look at the leaf out my window, which I can do right now, actually, what, what I see are a bunch of little captive cyanobacteria <laughs> inside those cells doing the work for that plant, mm. uh, photosynthesizing, releasing oxygen. Um, in much the same way that in our cells, we have um, uh, mitochondria, which were originally mm. bacteria, free-living free bacteria that were co-opted into a eukaryotic mm -hmm. cell uh, and, and are the centers of our respiration, right? So we're weird hybrids. Little, yeah. We, well, we're Franken's... Eukaryotic cells are Frankenstein monster cells. They're made of bits and pieces from elsewhere, basically, um, mm -hmm. in various ways. Uh, but that, but that's, you know, we were talking earlier about was that one of the great filters was making the mm -hmm. eukaryotic cell because that is a very specialized cell type that's critical to the complex life that we we have on, on, on this planet. Um, could, but, I, could I quickly ask, do you need to have a nucleus? Or do you, do you, is it only eukaryotes that are multicellular? Um, that that are multicellular in three dimensions with you know all this differentiation such as organs and bones and so on. So 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 what bacteria can do is that they can be multicellular in a kind of colonial way. So so you can get cyanobacteria that join together in a line and make a filament, and one of them decides to become a specialized cell that, that, that gathers the nitrogen, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of differentiation as well. And there is a sort of multicellularity, but it's it's what we call uniseria. It's just a mm -hmm. filament 
it's not it's not three dimensional, and the differentiation is very meager. It's just one cell out of a line of cells, and and so they can do that. But but can you get do you get uh, three dimensional organisms that are anything like animals or plants or fungi that that are made of bacterial cells or archaeal cells, which are you know these 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 cells that lack a nucleus? No, you don't you don't get that. So so the eukaryotic cell was essential for um, complex life on Earth, and and you know it's not just the nucleus; it has these organelles like the mitochondria in the case mm -hmm. of us, or or the um, chloro chloroplasts, which are actually derived from cyanobacteria in the case of the plants, the photosynthetic center, or and other organelles as well. So they're just they're just a more complex cellular form that that ultimately leads into a more more complex. Um, forms of life and in particular big life mm -hmm. uh, so, I, so i do think that uh you know extraterrestrials obviously if they're complex they have to be, they have to have a certain scale right mm -hmm. uh, there are these whimsical um i think it was a Gar was it a gary larson cartoon or maybe it was a movie where, where uh actually i think it might also in the um the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where where um some aliens Cross space and they come to the earth and and do and then the joke is due to a miscalculation in scale they get eaten by a dog or something because there are these tiny little spacecraft and they just get gobbled up <laughs> by a dog but but that actually can't work from a scientific point of view because because you simply wouldn't have uh you know cells have to be a certain scale then you've got to have to have a multiple multiple cells and differentiated cells to have a brain and so on so so uh even to get something that's um vaguely animal like you're you're already at the centimeter hmm. scale essentially and then to get something that's differentiated and that can move with limbs hmm. you're you know at the sort of meter scale ish or maybe hmm. certainly multiple centimeter scale um and, and then when you get to brains, you know, there's this relationship between mm -hmm. uh, brain size relative to uh, total size uh, encephalization, uh, we call it, or encephalization quotient, if you want mm -hmm. to uh, start putting numbers on things, where, you know, humans are unusual. We have, uh, relative to our size, we have quite a large brain. And um, and the only other organisms that, that are comparable are the other primates and the dolphins, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you do need, uh, but you also need a certain type of brain as well, uh, and that's that's another issue in human evolution. You know, how did why was it that we went from these ape-like creatures, uh, like chimpanzees, uh, the common ancestor, with them six million, six seven million years ago, uh, to these tool-using troglodyte kind of creatures, and then and then all of a sudden. This bursts in the yeah. last, particularly in the last fifty thousand years of writing and art and mm -hmm. space shuttles and and what have you. I mean, how did that happen? And I think we're getting some insight into that that there were some uh, changes in in genes which allowed a more Speech complex, or... yes, a more more complex brain. Uh, brain size is not the only thing because Neanderthals had. Big brains as well. I mean, even perhaps even mm -hmm. bigger than ours and and comparable size, but they probably 
um, you know, given that they that we know that they bred with humans from the, the genetics, uh, they may have been comparably intelligent. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and they may have, they may have had speech. They certainly had culture because mm -hmm. they they buried uh, their own in mm -hmm. in some kind of funeral ritual. Uh, so, but anyway, how how you get this kind of leap towards technological intelligence and art and culture and so on is is quite interesting. But but I think the animal behaviorists would all argue that almost every cultural trait or thing thing that we thought was unique to humans has some reflection uh, in the evolutionary uh, record of, of, of animals. So, you know, we think we're very, some people have made the argument, if you look in the literature that, oh, well, humans plan for the future. That's what's sort of unique about their intelligence. But, you know, I have a squirrel in my garden and it hides berries, nuts, food, and then it comes back like a month later and it's planning for the future. Uh, and there, there are even um, birds that, that can do that and, mm -hmm. and can hide things in, in literally hundreds of places and come Bees back. Bees make and, honey. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, yeah, that's sort of planning. But the, the, the question is whether it's instinctive or mm -hmm. um, there's some brain power involved. Mm -hmm. And I think when you... I think with bees, you can make the argument that it's instinctive. And with, with these things that hide uh, bits of food and then come back months later, I mean, is that instinctive? I'm not, I'm not sure. It seems, seems to me that there's some thought process of some description. That's a whole other uh, question. Going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we can't, I mean, yeah, animal behavior is a whole, whole different field. And so it's certainly relevant to this idea of uh, intelligent and technological um, well, can themes. can I ask then? So, on the subject of intelligence, I, I asked before if I gave you all the money in the world, you know, what would you put in your institute? Do you think SETI is money well spent? Do you think do, do you do you think there's a good chance that we're actually through a program like that going to detect uh, intelligent life? I, I mean, not just not just on the side of does intelligent life exist, but you know, you actually have to send out a signal, uh, signals get weaker with distance. Um, is it likely we're gonna detect uh, something using SETI or some analog? Well, of course, I don't know whether it's likely, but I think it is worth doing. Um, that I think it's it doesn't cost that much money just to have uh, arrays of radio telescopes that listen every now and again or survey this or do a survey of the sky over time relative relative to all of the other science that's going on the on in the world and and the way i look at it you know there are four ways of kind of answering or at least at least answer yeah answering the question of whether we're alone um and set is one of them so the other ones would be what we talked about earlier studying the origin of life and the evolution of life on earth which informs us generally about the conditions that are required and how likely that might be. And then something else we talked about earlier, exploring the solar system. Um, well, you know, it's our back, our cosmic backyard. Let's go and look on Mars. Uh, let's go and look on Europa. Let's look at Enceladus. Let's look at Titan. Let's also maybe look at some other bodies that are less popular right now, such as Triton, the largest moon of Neptune. I, that's where I think I'd, I would go as a high priority, as well as Enceladus, which basically is producing free samples because it has these jets at mm -hmm. the South Pole of material. And it's like, here's a free sample, take one. And, <laughs> and nobody's nobody's doing that right now. There is no 
funded mission to Enceladus. You could do a flyby and pick it up from... Uh, yeah. I see. Or you could fly through it. You need to go low, close to... Yeah. But it's okay because it's a very small body, so the gravity's not much. Uh, you need to go low because it's high-density material. Capture that material and then feed it into analysis. A spectrometer uh, in, or something. Yeah, instruments. Mass spectrometers would certainly be part of that, but there are other things you could do. Um so, so exploring the solar system is the second one after the origin of life. And then the third one is extrasolar systems. So these telescopes that we talked about, James Webb Space Telescope mm-hmm. and subsequent telescopes, ground, extremely large ground-based telescopes. Um, and then the fourth one is SETI, basically, uh, mm-hmm. as I see it. Um, and the, those are the, you know, it's a, it's a class of, of tools, mm-hmm. techno-signatures um, that, that is worth mm-hmm. investment. Uh and um you know because because we're building radio telescopes anyway for um surveying the milky way or other galaxies and so on and deep space and stars and so on so why not use Mm -hmm. them also for seti uh now the question is if you're a scientist a young scientist do you want to go into that field Mm -hmm. um i think i might have some reservations myself because it's it's like one of those things where you might you might win the jackpot, right? <laughs> and detect a SETI signal, but you might also spend your whole career and it's silent. Um, yeah. So you'd probably want to also do some radio astronomy, astrophysics, <laughs> study some stars and galaxies or something as well. Um, but what could possibly be more sort of profound and moving and um, paradigm shifting than discovering mm-hmm a signal that comes from extraterrestrial life. And if if there if there was something out there which was actually actively trying to communicate in a benevolent way, uh, then you would you could potentially learn something from these signals that, that mm-hmm. we could never learn in any other way. Even if, if you could never meet each other. Yeah, even if you could never meet each other. Um because of course the distances are huge. So it's mm-hmm. gonna take the conversation's gonna be really slow. Uh if 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 they're within a sphere of whatever mm-hmm. hundred light years, that's kind of an intergenerational conversation. Um, are you do you are you one of the? I you said it in a benevolent way. So Stephen Hawking and various other people say that we shouldn't be uh, sending out any signals and sort of advertising where we are. Do you, do you have a similar sort of reservation or not? Well, um, the thing is, we're sending out signals anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, whether you like it or not, I mean, the the signals the, the, from broadcast media are, are spreading out into space from from when it started. Um, of course, the signal gets weaker uh, in an inverse square way as it as as it leaks out. But you know, very sensitive uh, equipment could detect it. So so it's almost like that that horse has already bolted from the barn, mm-hmm. um, and there's not much you can do about it. Now the question is whether you should send out directed you know, targeted signals and my answer to that would just be a pragmatic one which is no because it's more expensive than listening it's much it's just cheaper to eavesdrop mm-hmm. <laughs> on potential cosmic conversations for extraterrestrial intelligence it's a more practical thing to do um there is this question of whether they would or not would or would not be benevolent someone like Carl Sagan always argued from a logic point of view that oh well if they're if they're a long-lived civilization you know, presumably they're not going to have uh, 
uh, they're going to have to have to dealt with their their anger problem by now <laughs> after thousands of years and because because they've existed so long um and and that you know that there is that argument you can make but it's just an argument about mm. and really you're talking about the sociology of extraterrestrials and <laughs> what do we know about met. that yeah absolutely i guess nothing. i guess our own planet is getting more peaceful with time so uh you can make an argument statistically and people like steven pinker wrote about he wrote a book about that didn't he mm. um but uh I'm, I'm not sure because because other people like jared diamond uh in his book the third Jim chimpanzee he has a chapter in there about extraterrestrials believe it or not and where he argues uh he uses the analogy from european civilizations going overseas and 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 doing horrible things to uh people who didn't have the same technology um for example a classic example would be the british going to tasmania right and and essentially wiping out the Tasmanians, or most of them, a few, a few survived, um, and, and have since um, their, their genes still exist. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it that way, and some cultures still, still still exist. But 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 they basically took the land and wiped out the people mm-hmm. there in a very brutal way. And the same goes for the European colonization of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. So he argues, well, you know, that's our example of what happens when an advanced civilization meets a primitive civilization. And and if we had a really advanced extraterrestrial civilization, uh, maybe we would seem ridiculously primitive to them and, and, and not worth it. But then the counter argument is, you know, the sort of Star Trek argument mm-hmm. that, that they use in, in that science fiction where they um, argue that the the intelligent beings would recognize this as a primitive civilization that maybe they should leave them alone and, and not bother them so much. Like we um, do with the East Sentinel Island or whatever it's called. Uh, this is primitive tribe that's uncontacted. Oh, yeah. You, I, I don't know the name of it. I'll put it down in the description. There's, but, there's uh, one in, um, are you talking about one in the Amazon? Uh, where, uh, where, no, where there's, not, there's an alone. island. Oh, where- oh, yes, that's right. Where where there have been people who have tried to break the rules and go to see them. Exactly. Yeah. There was that yes. missionary who was killed and right. but more or less we leave them alone. Yes. So so they, so some people have argued that that could be the situation. But the problem with all of this is still arguing about extraterrestrial sociology. I mean, I don't think we really have any idea. So um, You're saying it's speculative. <laughs> it's highly speculative. Yeah, it's, it's just off the scale of speculative. Um, so, so, much, so that's... So as a precautionary principle, you know, maybe we should avoid uh, sending out signals. And then as a pragmatic thing, it's just easier and cheaper just to listen. So let's just listen and not uh, send out these signals um, necessarily. Mm. That, that, would be, that would be my point of view. If we go back to, so the conversation sort of swept ahead. I, had a, I was curious to ask before. Um, when you were speaking about um, Mars not having an ozone layer, do we know how what, did did there used to be an ozone layer, and if so, how long was the period of time in, in which Mars could have been habitable for, for example, for extremophiles uh, from Earth on the surface? Well, the ozone layer on the Earth is derived from atmospheric oxygen. So basically, what happens is um, an oxygen molecule, which is made of you know it's O two, so two oxygen atoms join together, get split by sunlight, makes an oxygen atom, and then that atom joins together with an O2 to make an O3, which is ozone. So um, 
The reason we have an ozone layer is because we have an oxygen-rich atmosphere. The reason we have an oxygen-rich atmosphere is because we have biology that's pumping out the oxygen from photosynthesis. So was there an ozone layer on Mars? Well, probably not, if it didn't develop oxygenic photosynthesis. Uh, so in other words, um, for most of its history, it's probably been subject, at least while it's had a thin atmosphere, to um, being irradiated by ultraviolet on its surface. But, uh, you know, you can skin a cat in other ways. And one way to sort of have a protective um, atmosphere is simply to have a lot of gas. So, uh, uh, and then the, the then the, the ultraviolet can be scattered out. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe early Mars may have had a thicker carbon dioxide atmosphere, which is very good at scattering at short wavelengths. And that could have provide, afforded um, a fair bit of protection to the surface uh, environment in, as regards UV. And also, if you're life, you can hide away from UV. You can mm -hmm. in a, in a lake. You can just be. You can still receive visible photons, but ultraviolet gets absorbed quite easily in a shallow skin layer. So, um, one, I can imagine life living in an environment where there's quite harsh UV. And there is another reason to believe that is that that's what happened on the early Earth. So the Earth's atmosphere didn't uh, acquire much oxygen until about 2.4 to 2.1 billion years ago, a, 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 an interval called the Great Oxidation Event, when oxygen rose in the atmosphere. But before that, we, we're certain that life existed because there are things like these fossil stromatolites that I talked about earlier. And it was quite happy to live in a world where um, there wasn't an ozone layer. Um, and that's because uh, those organisms can basically secrete their own sunscreen or they can live a little bit under the surface and they can tolerate um, this ultraviolet. Um, so it's, it's really later on when you get more complex organisms that are living on the land surface where it becomes really important to have an ozone screen so things like us but also the plants um mm -hmm. they 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 that the live on land they wouldn't like an absence of an ozone layer either um so uh <clears throat> so I, I think you know the history of mars is is probably quite divergent from mm -hmm. what, what happened on the earth um there may have been this thick atmosphere early on that that allowed um not only some protection from ultraviolet but also a greater greenhouse effect and therefore liquid water on the surface of mars um and possibly life there mm -hmm. uh, we still need to look for that if if we did find life now w would it most likely be under the ground deep underground does mars get warmer as you dig down yeah so there's a geo what we call on the earth geothermal gradient but um it's the same for mars you know as you as you go down, it's just like if you went down a deep mine shaft on the Earth, uh, you would notice that the temperature is increasing as you go down a kilometer or two kilometers or something, um, or even or even shallow distances. And and the reason is that the Earth's interior, like any planet, is hot because um, there there's radioactive elements in the rocks which are mm -hmm. decaying and giving off energy. And then there's a there's quite a high thermal conductance because uh, it's not, you know, it's relatively insulating. And so so the heat flow is slow out, and then you set up gradient where it's warm on the inside, cold on the outside, essentially. Um, 
And so as you go down through the surface of the Earth, you know, uh, it increases by a certain number of degrees every kilometer, and so it gets hotter and hotter. And the same applies to Mars, although we don't really have a good handle on exactly what the number is for the geothermal gradient, but um, several degrees or something like that per uh, kilometer or mm -hmm. maybe even higher. So so um, it, it can also be higher if, if the surface is particularly insulating. Say it's there's a layer of uh, broken up soil that um, is, is insulating, then you can go down through that insulating layer and you'll you'll reach the point where it's above zero degrees Celsius and mm -hmm. therefore liquid water can exist. So then you could have an aquifer, mm -hmm. okay? And then there could be these um, organisms that are living in the aquifer. Uh, they might be extremophiles because it might be quite salty, for example, or maybe it's not. Um, we don't know, but uh, people have talked about the possibility that life could exist in the subsurface simply because it's warmer down there and you'll have liquid water and therefore you know one of the basic things that you need for for life as we know it and that's something that absolutely the current generation of rovers would not have touched on so there's no, no way we've ever seen it they're just wandering around on the surface <laughs> basically so um you know they they they're, they're not looking for um deep aquifers however perseverance rover does have a ground penetrating radar on it so if it if there was a pocket of water near the surface it, it, it could detect it actually um well then with that in mind are you when it comes to so recently we've had uh, spacex and all, all these this explosion in act activity are you more worried that we're going to uh, contaminate Mars and we'll never find out the question about whether uh, life developed separately on Mars or excited at the possibility that we get humans on the surface there who can actually do these tests in a much quicker way than, for example, uh, drones, rovers? Um, I think there is there is a good argument that a human wandering around on the surface of Mars can be extremely efficient compared to the rovers um, if you have the right person. Say somebody with a PhD in geology uh, in, in the sciences can uh, look at things and immediately make decisions and, and take samples in the right place of the right kind in a way that um, rovers can't. And uh, rovers are also very sort of restricted in, in the pace that they go. Um, and so, you know, what, a lot of what we know about the moon comes from the 380-odd kilograms of rock that was brought back by the Apollo astronauts and then subsequently analyzed. And people are actually still analyzing samples from the Apollo mission. Um, and I think humans would contribute like a quantum leap, if you like, in, in terms of the what we know about Mars if they went there and then and then came back with rock samples. What I'm what I'm less keen on is this idea of of colonizing Mars. That sort of Elon Musk talks about retiring on Mars and things like that. Um, I think there's a good argument for scientific exploration uh, by humans. Um, I think at the moment the idea of settling on Mars is way in the future realistically. Uh, and there've also been these weird 
um, ideas about Mar- remember Mars One, which was mm-hmm. this uh, private outfit that I know a guy out. who was quite far along in that whole uh, selection procedure, actually. Yeah, there was talked about sending people to Mars on a one-way trip, mm-hmm. uh, and um, there's a lot of people who'd be willing to do that. I mean, I wouldn't myself, but and, and, a, and a vast major- probably majority of other people wouldn't either, because they like you know things on Earth too much, such as uh, being able to breathe the air and getting a coffee and what have you from the local coffee shop and etc. Uh, there's a very long list, whereas. Mars is this global desert. I mean, there's there's nothing to do there <laughs> apart from wander about in the global desert. Um, in in terms of, in, in in, you know, it's a very alien environment psychologically, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But some people would be quite happy to get the glory of being the first person or group of people on on the planet and then just dying there. Um, but that's not that's not how I want to live my life, and, and many other people would would be of the same sentiment. Uh, it turned out that so Mars One, it turned out, never had enough money to go there, and it was it, I wouldn't call it a scam. It was just sort of a naive um, group of people, <laughs> perhaps. Um, so that that never came to fruition. Uh, I, I do think that um, the private industry. Uh, SpaceX and what have you is a bit of a game changer in uh, possibly um, allowing the technology to go and explore Mars. But the way that's happening initially is is there's a lot of government support, right? They're a contractor organization to do the business of NASA or maybe other uh, space agencies. So for example, the Europa Clipper, which is a, a mission to go into the orbit of Jupiter and do lots of flybys of, of Europa um, is at least at the, currently supposed to be launched on a on a SpaceX uh, launcher called a Falcon Heavy, just a big thing like seventy meters high or something. Um, and so, so it's it's enabling in that respect. That, that and 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 it may also be literally enabling if someone like Elon Musk stumps up the money to do his own. Mars mission or Jeff Bezos or whatever, because after all, they do have a heck of a lot of money where they could fund uh, something like their own mission to uh, mm. to Mars. Um, but is there a but- genuine concern that you could actually destroy your uh, ability to ever determine? Yeah. Uh, that is worrying. But, but, and there, there are international laws that are concerned with that. So the Outer uh, Space Treaty from 1967 and um, basically covers that, and you're not supposed to contaminate uh, other planets in that in that way. So, so they would be subject to the law, international law. And NASA has, you know, a planetary protection officer to ensure that um, when NASA sends missions to Mars, the uh, these rules are followed, and that that NASA's missions don't, um, at least to the best of our abilities. Uh, spread terrestrial life over the surface of Mars and contaminate the surface. Although SpaceX is sort of known, sorry for interrupting you, SpaceX is sort of known for, let's say, bending the rules, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly how this would be enforced is <laughs> a question for the lawyers, Not, um, and I'm not a space, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a space lawyer, which is very niche. Um, so I, I think... Um, 
I think that would have to be determined, you know. Uh, what do you do if a private company is going to Mars? How do you enforce planetary protection? Uh, would that mean, probably, I, I think the way it might happen in the United States, I assume, is that NASA would have to have some oversight um, mm. and the planetary protection officer of NASA would have to be involved in, in any private missions. But other, other, you know, once you go to other countries that don't have the same structure, mm. uh, how do you control them? Um, or rogue billionaires. <laughs> I mean, there aren't that many billionaires. There's only about 2,000, whatever it is, uh, in the world. So there aren't that many people, really, that have the resources to to do this. But there are a few. And, you know, supposing some in China, because there are... I read the other day that, that um, by some estimates, there are more billionaires in Beijing than there are in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what, what if some of those decide to set up a space company and, and go to Mars. Who's who's the oversight for them? I don't know. So um it could get it could get interesting in the future if uh as we get these people who want to explore Mars privately. But I think I think uh that is a factor um in whatever space exploration is going forward because um that they are producing companies and technology that that could enable the exploration of Mars and maybe, you know, it'll be a, some public private partnership in the future that, that puts humans on Mars. Um, but other people are suggesting that instead it, it may simply be China because, um, because they have, you know, vast resources and they have a, a state apparatus that can just, if they, if they want it to happen, it will just happen eventually. So, um, you know, in, in a way that in, say, in the United States or in other countries where we have a rather convoluted process to approve things <laughs> through our parliaments or mm. or whatever. Um, they have one man in charge. Yeah, they basically have a, you know, a sort of dictatorship, essentially, which, which could just say, oh, we're going to do this and then allocate the money. And when you're um, racing for the glory, it. it's easy to forget about the microorganisms. Yes, it could be. So we'll see what happens. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Chinese space agency would abide, I assume, by the international agreements. Uh, it's more, it's more the sort of uh, private en entities where I'm not quite sure how that would work going forward, but we'll see. I, I had two sort of questions that I wanted to uh, wrap up the conversation with. And so the first is going back in the direction uh, I guess more close closer to your own work. Um, <laughs> actually, three questions. Sorry. Um, so the 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 first is, um, you know, I can imagine today, uh, or in the near future, building some um, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, using silicon, right? And I can even imagine a situation where you have self-replicating factories and that sort of thing. Some sort of pseudo or synthetic life. Um, that we create as humans, but which nevertheless did not evolve naturally on the planet without us. Um, and so with that sort of context, I'm wondering, the in, as the Earth was, uh, you know, four billion years ago, was that initial environment necessary for the sort of life that we currently see today? Or if we were all snuffed out tomorrow, could life start again uh, today in, in our current environment? Uh, well, I think that's 
Um, an interesting question because um, I think it gets to the fact of, of you know, what we think about the origin of life. Okay, So in current thinking about the origin of life, we do require um, the kind of environment that existed maybe four point, somewhere between 4.5 and 4 billion years ago, roughly. And uh, the organic chemists, they actually use pretty nasty substances to make organic molecules. Uh, and one of their favorites is hydrogen cyanide. So cyanide is CN and uh, triply bonded. And, but it has an interesting property, which in, in organic chemistry is called a nucleophile. And what that means is that um, basically it's, it has a sort of dipole and, and it likes to go and attack other carbons in other molecules which is a good thing, it turns out, because it means that the cyanide can add another carbon to a molecule and also add a nitrogen in there. And if you do this repeatedly, you can show in the lab um, that you can make the nucleobases of RNA. Um, and so so uh, I think it's one of the sort of major results of, I mean, it's been, it goes back decades, but I think it's one of the major results of organic uh, synthesis in the origin of life is that you can use cyanide to, to make a whole host of biomolecules. Now we don't have any cyanide hanging around in the atmosphere today, which is very good because we'd get poisoned. Um, but on but on the early Earth, uh, there are these periods, um, millions of years after impacts have come in, when uh, you can get cyanide in the atmosphere. It's actually a result of the chemistry that goes on in the impacts and then its aftermath. Um, and then that can give rise to life. So if you snuffed out life today, I don't think you would have, I mean, all life, which is pretty yeah. difficult but <laughs> to do. Um, I don't think you would have the conditions, in my opinion, for the origin of life that we had on the early Earth. Um, with regard to the artificial life, I mean, that is its own uh, line of inquiry because there are some people who argue that the extraterrestrial intelligent life that we should be listening for or looking for could just be all these robots that that were produced by life like us that arose organically and then devised It's the next step in evolution. Yeah. And of course, those could live on, you know, one could imagine robots living on a place like the moon, which doesn't have oceans and doesn't even have an atmosphere but they'd be quite happy perhaps as long as they could <laughs> as long as as long as they could fix themselves uh whether they could do that without all the resources that they have on a place like the earth is is an open question i actually do think they you know most of the pro industrial processes we use end up using liquid water in one way or another mm -hmm. so so it might be difficult for them to live on in the very long term on a planet that doesn't have uh, a big supply of liquid water and so on but um, but artificial life does open up you know a range of habitability zones that we don't normally mm -hmm. think about because we're so focused on thinking about liquid water and and and, and life that arises arises spontaneously uh, as through organic chemistry mm -hmm. so I think you know your question is relevant because it gets this question of how did life originate as well as the question of what kind of life could there be out there that we should be looking or listening for. I guess artificial life 
might not have the same uh, signatures in the atmosphere as well. That, that you'd have True. completely different, uh, potentially, well, chemistry. Yeah, they might not even have any. Well, they're going to have some signature, I suppose, from whatever industrial processes they need to, to, to fix themselves and mm -hmm. reproduce themselves. Um, presumably, they'll give off some waste gases, but who knows exactly what that would be. And um, it wouldn't be like a what the traditional biosignature gases, which where we're looking for a results of the metabolism of a microbial biosphere that gives off waste gases like oxygen from photosynthesis or methane from um, from decomposing uh, organisms. Mm. Yeah. So I one thing I really wanted to ask you about, just because when I read it, I was so curious about how on earth you did it. So uh -huh. <laughs> your research looking at raindrops uh, billions of years ago to determine the density of the Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. How do you find a fossilized raindrop? How do you recognize something like that? It, it seems so, like... A, <laughs> how did this come out? Where did the idea come from? So, so first of all, it's not a fossilized raindrop. It's a fossilized raindrop imprint. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so imagine a raindrop falls that you could probably see this on a beach if you're unfortunate enough to go to the beach on a rainy day um, instead of a nice sunny day. So the raindrop falls and it creates a little dimple, a little crater uh, and that's what we find fossilized. We find fossilized raindrop imprints. Okay. And, um, you know, they're, they're not um, unheard of in the geologic record. And people have known about them for some time, actually. So one of the founders of geology, Charles Lyell, who was a sort of Scottish uh, gentleman in the 19th century, um, he actually wrote uh, about these in some papers, these these fossil raindrop imprints that he'd found in, in North America and elsewhere. Um, and, and, and what he was talking about then was, oh, well, these are interesting, aren't they? Because it means the rocks I've found here where I've, that have got all these dimples in, which I'm identifying as fossil raindrop imprints, um, that shows it was a surface exposed to the atmosphere. And um, so, 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 how did we think start thinking about this? Um, the reason, the reason was, I have a, a colleague um, at the University of Washington, Roger Buick, um, and he's he does a lot of field geology. He's Australian and, and, and knows the, the the northwest region of Australia, mm -hmm. the geology of it, extremely well, having been there at least I don't know what it is now, twenty field seasons or something around the North PA Pole. Yeah, <laughs> North Pole, Australia, um, and did his. PhD thesis there as well. So he knows the rocks really well. And he said he'd come across some raindrop imprints there uh, that were Archean in age. So that means before 2.5 billion years ago. Um, and the, and, and um, we also knew that there were some in the literature that had been reported from uh, the Archean. So the Archean is the eon of Earth history from 4 to 2.5 billion years ago. And um, we decided that ones in South Africa are actually better uh, because what had happened there was a sort of raindrop Pompeii, if you like. So the raindrops had created these, there'd been a shower and the, the raindrops had created these little dimples and, and then they got covered over with a layer of ash from a local volcano and, and therefore preserved, just like, you know, things are preserved in Pompeii. And then now the ash is weathering away 
and some of these surfaces are re-exposed, showing these uh, these raindrop imprints. And uh, of course, they've been fossilized because the the rock the the, the uh, material has been uh, lithified, turned into rock over time. And um, I, I didn't get the chance to go out there, but but the graduate student that we were co-advising and Roger went off to uh, this place, which was roughly between Cape Town and Johannesburg. Uh, if you can imagine that on a map where, where these, these raindrop imprints were. And they took uh, latex casts. They also took some of the rock away. There's some in Roger's office. Um, and uh, basically using the 3D topography of these things into a computer, um, we can work out the characteristics, their average size and surface area and volume and so on. And if you could imagine a raindrop falling through the atmosphere, it reaches a terminal velocity, which depends on the density of the atmosphere, okay? In a way which is known through physics. And actually there's also, it turns out, there's a maximum size of raindrop, which basically depends on two things in the physics, the surface tension of water and gravity. Things that have not changed, <laughs> throughout Earth history. And that, that sort of sphere equivalent maximum size is about seven millimeters sphere equivalent, roughly speaking. Uh, so if we can look at the maximum sized raindrop imprints, which were caused by the maximum sized raindrops, which we know were about seven to eight millimeters in size, we can back out the air density. Now we do have to do a calibration here, which is we had to drop some rain some drops of various size into the substrate which was very similar to the original substrate but luckily that was a, vol a volcanic ash as well so we got some ash from from greek uh, from iceland um actually and uh remember that iceland volcano mm -hmm. that that shut down all the we got some of that ash and some also <laughs> some other ash and we did some experiments or rather the graduate student did the experiments and then and then figured out scaling relationships uh, between the air density, the crater size, and so on. And then used the ones that we found in the field and then figured out that the atmosphere 2.7 billion years ago, if you convert to density, uh, was probably about, sorry, convert to pressure was probably about somewhere between, uh, well, it was what we put an upper limit on it, that, that it was probably less than about half a bar, so half of what it is today. So today is one bar's surface pressure, and it was actually a thinner atmosphere than today, and which is interesting. Did who came up with the idea? Was this you that came up with the idea of doing this? So, so Roger, my colleague Roger said, "Can we do anything with these raindrop imprints?" Right, and um, because there's a lot of variables, and then I went away and thought about the physics, and I. You know, I, I, my real specialty area is the evolution of planetary atmospheres and their composition, so on. So, I, so I, I knew a fair amount about, you know, I have a back, background where I know some meteorology and things like that. But I delved into the literature, and I did some calculations, and I realized that I realized this thing which I just told you about that there's this maximum raindrop size, and I thought, and that's when I had the aha moment and thought, oh, if we look at the maximum, the biggest ones, you know. The biggest imprints and, and we think about the biggest raindrops that just depends on surface tension of water and gravity things that haven't changed that's where we need to go to, to get this constraint so i did i did come up with that idea 
which kind of was the um, the way to solve the problem. Uh, but it, but it's also the first paper in the academic literature that that has ever done anything quantitative with raindrop imprints. All all of the rest in the geology literature is just oh here's some raindrop imprints. Aren't they interesting from the Carboniferous or from the Jurassic or something? And and nobody's actually done anything quantitative with them before. So this was the the first time somebody had done that, and then also the first time that so. But to be fair, I went back and I read Charles Lyell's papers from the 19th century. And he actually says in there, oh, you know, because these raindrops in the imprints in the Carboniferous, uh, which is about 300 million years ago, that they're roughly similar in dimension to the raindrop imprints, you know, from yesterday or whatever, <laughs> um, that the air density hasn't changed much in the last 300 million years. So he was already, he already realized... That, that, you know, terminal velocity depends on air density. Therefore, the crater size would be a reflection of the air density. But, um, you know, he didn't do any mathematical calculations or any physical mm. calculations. But he did know the physics in essence because he mentions that it depends on density. So he knew that much. He was a clever guy. Um, I just love that you can put down a flag billions of years ago and say, <laughs> we know the air density because of this, these reasons. It's, it's, it's a nice bit of uh, sleuthing work. I, I yeah, like it. It was a pretty cool <laughs> paper. We were very happy with it. <laughs> but it was a lot of work because, you know, it's a mixture of field work, the lab work, computer work, statistics. Um, but, but, but a great project because it, it involves all these multifaceted uh things um, but so so what does it mean ultimately for that uh, time period in terms of uh, how, what what does this help you with when when trying to determine the type of life well we're, we're, we're trying to understand how the earth works really mm -hmm. uh in this particular case and so if we find that the atmosphere was thinner then why was that well one mm -hmm. reason of course you didn't have all, all of the oxygen that we have today which makes up makes up 20 percent. so that's not there um and then the, the most of the rest of the Earth's atmosphere is nitrogen, right? So um, why would that be different? And the answer that we deduced is that, um, you know, there is in fact this nitrogen cycle where nitrogen atoms are what we call fixed by biology. So biology extracts some nitrogen from the atmosphere. That's where all the nitrogen comes from in our proteins, basically. Well, actually, a lot of ours comes from the industrial process, which does the same thing. And um, makes fertilizer and then uh, goes into our bodies. But but anyway, without without those industrial processes, the only way to get the nitrogen that makes up uh, all of the nitrogen in, in particularly the proteins, but also in the genetic molecules of life, um, is through this process of carbon fixation. And and basically, the only the only creatures that do that are bacteria and uh, certain types. And then that nitrogen, you know, if that was all that was going on the atmosphere would disappear, <laughs> be sucked out. But so, so it gets returned. And the way that it gets returned is is through the nitrogen, what we call the nitrogen cycle. And what happens is that the nitrogen then gets oxidized mm -hmm. and turns into nitrite and nitrate. Those have two and three oxygen atoms, respectively. Uh, and then there are other bacteria called denitrifiers that turn the nitrate or the nitrite into molecular nitrogen again and put it back in the atmosphere. And what happened on the early Earth, remember I said you had to oxidize the nitrogen that has been fixed. Well, that step is sort of missing because there wasn't oxygen around. And so your um, the return path for the nitrogen is throttled 
down, we believe, and that's why the atmosphere would have been thinner. And and the reason it was interesting is because there'd been these papers in the literature that had just assumed, based on armchair reasoning, which is always very dodgy, uh, that the atmosphere was thicker on the early Earth. They, they just assumed that because volcanoes were more active, pumping more gases out there, you know, into the atmosphere, it would be thicker. And, and it needed to be thicker in any case because the sun was fainter and you needed to keep the same, you know, you needed a thicker atmosphere would help the greenhouse effect and so on. Um, so, so we kind of liked our result because it was sort of oh, a surprise. <laughs> it was... it. Actually, we, we went into the field thinking, oh, you know, we'll probably find that the atmosphere is about the same mm-hmm. thickness as it is today or, or, you know, twice as thick or something. So so we were influenced by the armchair reasoning as much as anybody else. But then the great thing about observational science is that you get results that are unexpected. And, you know, this was a result that, that oh, it's thinner. It's probably thinner than than today, or at least, but we also did another technique uh, later on um, where we looked at bubbles in lava flows uh, from the early earth. And, and what happens is that certain lava flows have a lot of gas in them and then they solidify, but they solidify from the top and bottom, the cooling fronts. And um, the bubbles at the top are under the constraining pressure of basically air pressure, the weight of the atmosphere. And the ones at the bottom are under the constraining uh, pressure of the weight of the atmosphere plus the weight of the rock. And so the ones at the top are big and the ones at the bottom are small bubbles. So we had some ancient lava flows with these bubbles in them. Um, and we did differential measurements. They basically supported the, the raindrop. So it's consistent. Uh, yeah. In fact, actually more constraining because the raindrop, there are so many variables in the raindrop. Um, Could have started that, a different height. Yeah. Or... So so it's it was... There could have been you know, wind it, blowing. Yeah, so as so, well, yeah. Um, there was a little bit of wind blowing because actually our raindrops are <laughs> slightly, the raindrop imprints are slightly elongated, right? From Shows wind from a certain direction, um, which is one of the ways you recognize the raindrop imprints. They're not perfectly round. They're slightly or elongated. you could have had it on wind. an angle, the surface. Uh, unlikely because these are bedding planes that, mm-hmm. you know, where sediments yeah form and usually a flat um anyway uh we did it with the other the other thing and, and basically it showed that the air pressure was likely less than half of what it is today um it's such a nice discovery from such a random place i really like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a good idea and you know we might do it again um with some other samples we just haven't got around to it yet um there aren't too many from this period of earth history but there are in the middle period of Earth history, there are, there are also raindrop imprints that we could go and sample. But as I said, it's a lot of work. You have to fly there and do all the field work and then do all the analysis and lab work again and so on. Um, so I want to I wanna wrap this conversation up with something that's not really science, just uh, to get a feeling for how you think. Um, you know, when I look, when I go out at nighttime and I look up at the stars, I, I sort of imagine all the different lives that could be going on on the different planets and in the different galaxies and so on. And I sort of look up in awe at the what could be billions of other you know, civilizations even uh, up there. On the other hand, it, I find it kind of sad that I, I'm never going to be able to visit 
any of these planets. So I, I'm wondering if you sort of share this sort of uh, joy and awe mixed with sort of sadness that I that I do when it comes to thinking about uh, life on other planets uh, and, and how that sort of I don't know, paints or colors uh, the research that you do or, or, or how it's affected by the, your view of uh, your research? Yeah, I think, um, you know, mostly when I go out and look at the night sky, I can't see anything because it's Seattle and it's cloudy. But um, <laughs> uh, but on those occasions when I get out, particularly in the countryside, away from the bright city lights and also, you know, the best sky really is in the southern hemisphere, I think. Um, there's more stars. There's, well, there's simply more stars. I mean, the, the, one of the best views I had was in the Atacama Desert when uh, I went to the, uh, the 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 Paranal Observatory, which of course is in the right place. That's why they have an observatory there. Um, and it was just a beautifully clear night. Of course, very dry because it's the Atacama Desert, and you just look up at the Milky Way, and it's spectacular. Um, the, the sheer number of of stars. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I you know it's hard, and and you know when you're looking at the Milky Way, you're looking at the you're looking sort of edge on at the Milky Way galaxy, um, which is weird to think about, uh, and you know I do agree that that when you think about the vastness of it and all of these uh, sort of controlled thermonuclear explosions, which is what stars are essentially um, controlled by their own gravity. Uh, it does seem pretty amazing. And when you think also, you know, we know now from the various surveys that have been done that uh, typically your star will have at least one and maybe more exoplanets going around it. But, um, but you know, I think, I think I tend to think that the, if there are, if there is life widespread out there, probably most of it is simple life. Um, and I do think about those planets that, you know, have their dinosaurs and have their other life forms. There's nothing intelligent there, nothing I can talk to. Uh, but I think most of them probably are just nothing more sophisticated than microbial slime if there is life out there. Um, but nonetheless detectable uh, in terms of, because I imagine it would spread globally and, and it affect the atmosphere that we could detect. Um and I tend to think that complex life, animal-like life, is probably extremely rare or relatively rare. And so only very, very few of those stars would have planets with that kind of life, I imagine. I mean, this is all speculation because we we have no idea yet. Like I said before, we're te probably technologically limited. The analogy that I sometimes talk about with students is that it's a bit like um, before the invention of the microscope, uh, everywhere there are microbes on our skin, clothes, etc., in the air. But before the invention of the microscope, and uh, Anton van Leeuwenhoek in, in the Netherlands was looking down a little pond water, or, nobody knew about all this stuff that's literally everywhere. And it could be the case that you know microbial life is everywhere. On, on on lots of planets that are in the habitable zone of their stars. And we'll find that out when we have these big telescopes in space. And everybody go, oh yeah, well, I thought that anyway. They'll probably say. Uh, or there is this alternative idea that it could just be all dead stuff. <laughs> it's all like the moon and Mercury or Venus or whatever, or Mars. 
at least the surface environment. Um, and that will all be a bit spooky if it turns out like that, won't it? I mean, us here alone and, and, and a vast number of stars and just this, as I said before, just this vast theater of sterile physics and chemistry going on according to the laws of physics. Um, so I don't really feel the sadness that you do because I, I mean, I know there's absolutely no chance of, of ever going there in person. Uh, but I, but I'm sort of optimistic that, well, we're on the cusp, you know, it's, it's actually a sort of almost a unique time in, in human history that we're on the cusp of answering these questions about, is there life elsewhere? Right. And, and it didn't used to be like that. It used to be literally for the past decades and centuries and going back to Aristotle and so on, that you just have to ask, people would just ask some old geezer, you know, who's supposed to be wise what's your opinion on this and it would just be an opinion but but what i'm what i'm excited about is that instead of asking some old philosopher their opinion we can interrogate nature itself and get data back and answer the question scientifically with observation and that we're almost at the point where we can do that with the extremely large telescopes and the space-borne telescopes that it will be coming online in the next decade or two. Uh, the, the only thing that I feel sad about is that I may not live <laughs> to see to see the, um, the you know the successors to the James Webb Space Telescope. I may either be kind of retirement age, or I may simply not be alive at the point when they're they're pointing towards Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, because um, that that scale of telescope in space is needed to do that. So that's the only little thing where I'm a little bit unhappy, but um, in general, I'm pretty optimistic about the way things are going. Uh, and, and, and the discovery of all of these exoplanets around other stars has been a real um, major advance, in, a major advance in, in, in science as a whole, right? I mean, we didn't know, know that information before. And, and of course, it's been a major stimulus to the area of astrobiology and planetary science, um, which are areas I work in. So that's a good thing. Escaped sapiens. 